Welcome to Meet Your Funeral Celebrant. My name is Tony Piper, and in each episode of this podcast, I'll be talking with a funeral celebrant. As well as getting to know them and exploring their approach to funerals, each guest will also share some useful tips. I hope this helps you find the right celebrant for you so you can create a good send-off. So let's begin. This episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Peter Wiley. Peter is based in Wellingborough in Northamptonshire in the UK and has been a funeral celebrant since 2009. As part of his work, he conducts 20 to 30 baby funerals every year. By way of interesting fact, Peter conducted the UK's first Klingon wedding at the Star Trek convention in 2012. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Danny. Yeah, it's good to be with you. I hope I sound like I'm just in the other room. You certainly do. Why don't you fill in some of the gaps and tell us a little bit more about you? Well, I'm uh, currently 69 years old, got the big 7-0 next year. I spent a lot of my life working in sales, one form or another. Um, I then was involved with sales training, presentations. I used to run big seminars. Um, For many years, I was involved in the church until Faith and I parted company on a formal sense. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was involved with running and conducting things like sales training, presentation skills, time management courses all over the country for lots of different people. So that's pretty much my background, really. Hmm. How did you end up becoming a funeral celebrant then? Well, I had a very good friend called Keith. And Keith and I had known each other for a lot of years, sadly, in the latter part of his life. Uh, Keith was a hugely talented man. He was a great close-up illusionist, member of the Magic Circle. He was uh, a marketing man. Um, At one stage, he'd been a partner in a big marketing firm, driving his Bentley and doing incredibly well. Sadly, in the latter part of his life, he became an alcoholic and um, we had been a little bit estranged for a couple of years because he, he kind of, like many alcoholics, didn't face the truth about his situation. And when he died, as he did um, 10 years ago now, um, I went to his funeral and it was the first time ever I'd been to a funeral conducted by uh, a celebrant. And uh, I didn't know what one was. I enjoyed the funeral. Mm-hmm. And at that point, It was like a eureka moment. I thought, you know what, this is something I'd like to do. Um, The timing wasn't right then um, for for reasons that I couldn't even afford to go on the training. So it was um, nine years ago in January that finally um, I went on the training and became a celebrant. Uh, But it was the inspiration of going to that funeral that made me realize that it was a job that I could probably bring my limited skill set to. What's important to you about being a funeral celebrant then? Well, that's a, that's an interesting one. Um, I think the most important thing is that when you meet a family and I tell families this, I say to them, look, I have got one real objective in mind. Um, First of all, when I meet a family, I I need to explain to them that I do understand the grief and the difficulty uh, of this whole process. Hmm. But I also explain that to give them the very best that I can, I'm going to be very practical and pragmatic with them and talk them through every step of the way. 
And so I say to them, look, I have got one objective, really, and that is to help you make this the best funeral service that it can possibly be for whoever it is, for dad, for mum, for your brother, whatever. And at the end of the service, I'll tell you what my aim is. I want people to come up to you afterwards and I want them to say something like, do you know what? I think that was. Can I say this? That was the best funeral we've ever been to. I really enjoyed it. And John would have just loved it. Mm. And if I can do that, then I think we've done the best that I can do for you. And we've done the best that we can do for the person. And that's my aim, really. And, and, and so every funeral I take, I have that objective in mind. And I get so many emails now from families. Got one the other day saying, you're absolutely right. Everybody said what a great funeral it was. Everybody said how Rob would have loved it. Everybody said, you know, it just captured the essence of him. And that's, you know, I think if you've done that, you've done the best that you can do. Right. And we're going to explore that a little later on in the uh, in the conversation. Yeah, sure. What do you love most about the job then? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> do you know, I think I love every element of it. Um, um, it's going to sound odd, but, but I think it's important to understand. Um, I love meeting people, and so much of my life in sales was spent meeting people, meeting people in their own homes uh, when I worked for some companies, meeting people in their place of business, establishing rapport, relationship, and building that into what in those days would have been a product or service sale, but now building that into what is going to be a perfect funeral. I love that part of it. I love the creative part of writing elements of it. Um, you know, I, I use poetry and verse quite a lot in my services and some of those uh, are poems that I have written I don't describe myself as a poet I think that's a bit pretentious based on what I do and what I am is I'm a writer of verse and doggerel um, but um, so I use that and the other part I really do enjoy is delivering the service um, you know somebody said to me I mean I used to be an amateur drama and I've uh, run seminars and performed effectively in front of, you know, three or four hundred people at top London hotels. Um, and there is there is a satisfaction in standing and delivering a service to the very, very best of your ability. And at the end of that service, feeling, as you often do, uh, a little bit, whew, um, drained perhaps sometimes because mm -hmm. you've just given it everything you can give it for that 30 minutes. Yes. Um, and on some occasions, we, we get the opportunity of delivering funerals in unusual places where we do more than just deliver the standard 30 minutes, a real tribute to somebody's life with, with music and pictures and speakers and so on, and coordinating all of that. So what do I love about it? I love every element of it, really. It, every bit of it has something different that I enjoy. And that comes across in your enthusiasm and energy, I must say. But if you had to choose one skill that is your most useful skill, what would that be? I suppose my u most useful skill overall is the skill, I, if it is a skill, is the skill of being able to involve and embrace uh, and get other people involved and uh, communication probably 
mm-hmm. um, because all of that skill then comes through in the writing and the delivery. But if you've not managed to build a relationship with the family in a very short space of time, I mean, I often say to them, look, I know this is artificial. We're going to spend a few hours together and go through everything. Uh, but, but I want to get under your skin a little bit. You know, I want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me so that when I take the service, I don't seem like a complete stranger. Yeah. Um, and that part, that's if it is a skill, but that reading body language, that understanding personality types. I used to do personality type training. So recognizing whether I'm dealing with somebody who's an introvert or an extrovert, whether they are a high driver who wants who wants facts and bang, 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 or whether they're an explorer who wants to just chat, yep. uh, what, whatever type of person they are. And I think that is an incredibly useful thing hmm. that I gained out of years in business, really. So I can see how that underpins everything that you do. Yeah, it does for me. Hmm. So what makes a good funeral? Well, um, a good funeral is one that it, that helps a family through what is an incredibly painful and difficult time. So I always say to families, there are two good elements to a funeral. One's tears and the other is laughter. Mm-hmm. If it's all tears, then it's terribly depressing. If it's all laughter, it can be quite superficial. So a service needs to have moments of release and relief when uh, people smile or laugh as they remember something special about the person. Mm-hmm. But it also needs to have moments of serenity and peace and gravitas, which gives people the freedom to to grieve and to cry. Yes. Um, they are saying goodbye to somebody and leading up to that awful moment when we have the committal and they finally say goodbye to the physical the important is the importance is to keep reassuring them along the way that it's you know they're still going to have the memories they're still going to have the love of that person and so on so a good funeral is one that somehow in the limited space of time that we have uh, mainly at crematoria is delivering that for the family in a way that sends them away feeling, my goodness, we did the best that we could do. Mm. Yes, that's the job that needs to be done. Yeah, and it's important that every celebrant has a, a different personality, and they have a different approach. Uh, they, they deal with it in different ways, but at the end of it, no matter what our personality, no matter what our style, the end the end product, the end result needs to be the same. A family going away, feeling they've done the best that they could do. Now, I might be putting you on the spot a bit here, but could you give us a sense of what it would be like to be at one of your funerals and particularly at that time of committal? Yeah, sure. I mean, there is, I, I explain to families, when I go and visit a family, because, because they can't pick up a prayer book, and open it and see what's going to happen. And because frequently all that families have ever done before, unless they've been to one of my services, all they've ever done before is perhaps go to a service conducted by uh, a minister or a religious leader. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people come with a preconception of what a funeral needs to be. So 
when I'm with a family, what I always do is I find out, first of all, what is it that they are looking for out of the service? Have they had any thoughts of their own? Have they thought about music, readings, poems? Have they thought about these things? And uh, I take their ideas first, which can then be incorporated into the structure of the service. But I explain to them that the service is a journey. We come in and ultimately we're leading up to the point at which we say our goodbyes. And that's pretty much at the end of the service, what we call it the committal. Now, I, I don't know if I'm right, but I do believe that the committal is really the only part of the funeral service at a crematorium that you absolutely have to have. Because I believe I'm right in saying that when the coffin is placed on the catafalque, mm -hmm. it cannot then be removed from the catafalque. It has to go through. Yes. For cremation. Yes. And I believe that it takes a legal intervention to stop that happening. So I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong there. But I believe that's the certainly, case. Yeah. Certainly the committal is the important part. Yes. So and it it's the bit we dread. The it's the Absolutely. bit we dread. We ask about curtains and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. And so I try to find out what the family's feeling is about what they want. And then I take them on a journey with words I take them on a journey in their imagination through the service while I'm with them. And the importance of this is that there are times in the conversation when you know you're going to strike a hot button, when you know you're going to, and I warn them, I say, listen, you'll need your tissues, your tear ducts are going to get a bit of a squeeze during the time we're together today, so don't worry about that. There's a sense in which that's what I'm looking for when I'm with the family. I want to know what are those elements that are going to help them with their grief, that are going to help them through this process. So I, I like to talk to them about the kind of words that I'm going to use. And so I lead up to the committal. So we, we have some opening readings. We welcome people. We deal with the reality of why we're there, which is the death of the person. I mention normally by name the key family members. There's a little Native American saying I often use. You've probably heard it. When you were born, the world around you rejoiced and you cried. So live your life so that when you die, it's you that rejoices and the world around you that cries. And all of our love and thoughts today are with every one of you from the family, part of his world who are crying today. And it just leads into acknowledging the grief, mm. talking about the grief. And it's important. And if there are younger people in the service, I, I talk to them. I say, listen, look, what can I, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I have to tell you, it just flipping hurts. It's painful. And at times like this, when we cry, that's important. Grief's nature's way of healing our broken hearts. Tears are part of that. So if you find your tear ducts getting a squeeze in the service, don't worry. Blow your nose. Don't be ashamed. And that helps people have the permission to grieve in the service. They don't feel they've got to have this stiff upper lip. Because you know when you get to the committal, somebody said, oh, I don't like the committal. The family look upset. 
well, <laughs> it's part of the it's part of the deal. You know, mm-hmm. we are upset. I've been to lots of funerals of my own with my own families, and I get upset the same as everybody does. It's part of it. So uh, we go on a journey of talking about the person. And at the end of that, we will often have some music. If we're in a crematorium that doesn't have anything high tech, we might just play a track or have the organist. If we're in a high tech crematorium, we might have a slideshow to music showing some scenes from the person's life. Mm -hmm. And it's all about reminding us of that person, reminding us who they are and what they meant to us. And then where I normally lead into some words of meditation and thanksgiving, uh, and at the end of that, it's a simple thing of saying, so today we give thanks for John. We, we just give thanks for the man that he was and the life he lived, the life he gave to his children. We give thanks for all those gifts and talents that he was blessed and that he shared so willingly. We give thanks for the carers and nurses and doctors at the hospice who cared for him so diligently and kept him comfortable, dignified and free from pain. And now we know we've just got to reach deep inside. We've got to dig into our own reserves of faith and strength and courage to be able to leave him safe in the knowledge that he is now at peace and at rest, free from pain, reunited now today in death with all those from the family, those generations that have gone on before. And then sometimes, if it's appropriate, having said thank you for the person, sometimes it's appropriate on behalf of the children particularly to take an opportunity of saying thank you to the person. And I found a great reading, which I include if it's appropriate, which is as we look back over time, we find ourselves wondering, did we remember to thank you enough for all that you've done for us, for all those times you were by our sides to help and support us to celebrate our successes, to understand our problems and accept our defeats, of just teaching us by your example the value of hard work, good judgment, courage and integrity. We wonder if we ever thanked you for the sacrifices you made to let us have the very best, or for simple things like smiles and laughter, or just the times we shared. Well, if we have forgotten to show our gratitude enough for all the things you did, we're simply thanking you now. And we are hoping that you knew all along just how much you meant to us. So we've, we've said thank you for the person. We've said thank you to them. And sometimes during the playing of the music, before we do that, the family come and they bring a flower and they place it on the coffin and they stand to have their own quiet moment of private goodbye before we have those words and the committal leading on from it. And then I invite everyone to stand for the committal for respect, unless sometimes, you know, if it's an elderly couple and the wife is very frail and not able to stand, then I'll simply say now, out of respect for Gladys today, we are going to ask you all to remain seated for our committal. You know, so just being responsive, really. Yeah. And my, my preferred way of conducting a committal is to talk on behalf of the family to talk to the deceased and in one of the crematorium it's very easy you're right next door to the catafalque 
you can stand and I'll often place a hand on the coffin and talk to the deceased. And I'll say something, something along the lines of, well, John, goodness me, it was a cracking life, wasn't it? You know, there's no doubt today that at the end of your full, rich life, you've left behind hearts that are aching. You've left behind so many pains of grief and tears. But my goodness, you've left behind so many warm and loving memories, memories that will never fade. Now it's our wish that you find yourself in the embrace of eternal love. Beside still waters, in green pastures, that today we grieve at your death, but we do. We're so grateful for your life, for the privilege of knowing you and sharing your life with you. So today, John, it's with love and gratitude that we now commit all these fond memories to be locked away in our hearts. We commit your soul to eternal rest and we gently commit your body to be cremated. And we celebrate your life and honor you. We pay tribute to you. But most of all, we celebrate and honor that consistent love that you always shared with all of your family. That, that comradeship with your friends. And you know what? They're never going to forget you, John. They'll be holding you in their hearts with great love and affection as long as they live. And in that certain knowledge. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. So that's the kind of committal words that I would use. Um, And the issue of the curtain is discussed. Um, In one crematorium, my preference is always to close the curtains because the family have to stand and turn their back on the catafalque to leave. At other crematorium, if the family want to leave the curtains open... I don't mind. They can come forward as they leave and pass the coffin. Um, But the modern uh, crematoria that I work in, a lot of them have a veil, like a voile, that can be drawn round rather than a curtain. So the coffin remains veiled in view. And at the end of my committal, I say, and as we say farewell to John today, we remember that he's not cut off from us completely by death today. It's just that for the moment, the physical's been veiled from our view until we meet him again in the bright light of our memory, or who knows, perhaps, one day face to face beyond the veil of death. Oh, Peter, I didn't know, John, but I have to say I have a shiver down my spine, and if I was at a funeral where you were talking about somebody that I loved in that kind of way, I'd know there's nothing else that I could have done. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. So that's that's really what we, we we try to do, and and then end the service with with a reading, with a poem, perhaps before the final piece of music. And I always try and help families choose something that's going to at least send people out with a spring on their step and a smile on their face, having gone through the sadness of the goodbye. Mm. So there's mm. a lot of popular poems and readings um, that we can use um, depending on the family's needs, you know? Sure. Are there are there any things that you find people naturally tend to worry about that, that just with your experience you can reassure them that they don't need to worry about it so much? Yeah, I think um, the worries that most people have are what will people think if we don't sing all things bright and beautiful? You know, 
<laughs> what will people think if we don't have the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. What will people think if we don't conform to what some people think is a stereotype? So 90% of my services plus probably don't have hymns um, only because my experiences, I say to families, if you could stand where I stand and look out, uh, you'd see the number of older people that have their arms folded and answer, well, we wouldn't be able to see, we'll be too upset. I said, so why put yourself through it? You know, Mm -hmm. why have the hymn? Why don't, did, did the person have a favorite singer? You know, if they're a certain age, it might be Harry Seacombe or it might be Catherine Jenkins or it might be Bryn Terfel or it might be that they loved, they loved Salvation Army music or whatever it might be. And so early in the service, instead of a hymn, we might listen to Harry Seacombe singing Abide With Me rather than having to stand and sing it. Yeah. Um, and I always introduce that part of the service by... I use the Joyce Grenfell poem. Um, you know, I'll say something like, you know, the thing about John is the one, the one thing I know from having met the family is the last thing in the world he'd want is, yes, we're going to grieve, but the last thing in the world he'd want is to be remembered sadly. I mean, he had a good life. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't want you remembering him sadly. Joyce Grenfell put it this way. If I should go before the rest of you, break not a flower nor inscribe a stone. Nor when I'm gone speaking a Sunday voice, but rather be the usual selves that I have known. Yes, weep if you must. Parting is hell, but life goes on. So sing as well. And that's what we're going to do if I'm introducing a hymn, or mm-hmm. you might be relieved to know we're not going to get you up to sing, but we are going to let Harry Seacombe do it for us as we listen to his wonderful version of Love Divine or whatever the hymn is. Yeah. And, and often that will deal with it. And if I'm, at a, if I'm at a crematorium where there is an organist, I will often have the organist play quietly in the background through my committal. And they might play Crimond, the Lord's my shepherd, or they might play Abide with me, or mm-hmm. they might play the day thou gavest, Lord has ended, the darkness falls at thy behest. But they'll play it quietly. And people that know that it's a hymn will hear the words in their head but it won't be intrusive to the committal. Yeah. Um, and in that way, I find most of the time families' worries are put to rest that, that everything's okay. You know, it, I say, you know, the thing about a modern funeral is, first of all, there's no right and wrong. There's only what's appropriate. Yeah. And only you can decide what's appropriate for you and for John. And, and also, you know, this service is for you. It's not for anybody else. It's for you. And it's for you to make it exactly what you want it to be. There are no rules. We can do, within that 30 minutes, we can do anything that you'd like. And if you've got some ideas and you're thinking, oh, I don't know whether we should do that, then let's talk about it. Because, uh, yeah. you know, we, we can do our best to make sure it happens for you. Mm-hmm. So much around giving permission and funerals. Yes, there is. And, and, and part of that is because, you know, so many funerals in the past, people have not been able to give permission to anything. You know, uh, you know, a typical sort of, and I know not all ministers are like this, so I'm not tarring everybody with the same brush. Mm-hmm. But so many times a minister will go and spend 20 minutes with the family, half an hour, 
he doesn't know them it's part of their busy day and so they go along to the family they say good now then we need three hymns what or two hymns which hymns would you like and have you chosen some music to come in and out now is there anything else now have you written anything about the person that i can read or is somebody else going to do it yeah job done you know mm. and no permission needed because the the, the 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 priest is going to open with you know jesus said i'm the resurrection and the life you know or whatever their opening sentences are there are going to be the same prayers yes it's a they, standard they liturgy don't need to give permission. yeah yeah how you doing <laughs> i'm good i'm still thinking about your committal and just how how deeply you tap into a lot of things with the words you use and the way you use them. It's very important. Mm. Very, very important. Uh, you know, it's very important. And sometimes people feel that, that, you know, if the person has absolutely no belief at all, I mean, there, there is, how can I explain this? I think these days, you know, certainly the standard religious service has now started to fade from people's consciences. Yeah. Consciousness, rather, not consciences, but consciousness. Um, and part of the reason for that is that more and more of us baby boomers do not define ourselves by a religious belief. Mm. Um, I mean, when, I, when a family asks me, what do you believe? I say to them, look, the best way I can describe me is to say I'm a spiritual atheist. And they laugh and say, what do you mean? And I said, well, I really don't believe that there's a big divine being in charge of all this mess. Otherwise, you wouldn't have so many things in the world like Trump or whoever. But <laughs> I do believe that there is a spiritual dimension to life. I believe that we have spiritual connections with the world and with each other. And how that translates to what happens beyond the grave, I don't know. But Einstein said that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It merely changes its form from one form to another. So at the very most basic level, the energy that you experience with John during his life, now that he has died, has transformed itself into the energy of living memory. And that's what we want to tap into during the mm. service. Yes. Yeah. And I, I find a lot of families at that point relax and smile and go, yes. that pretty much sums up how John felt. Huh. Or that pretty much sums up how we feel. Yeah. John wasn't religious. I mean, going back, they feel one of the things that they often feel they have to do is to justify the fact that John went to Sunday school when he was a boy or was in the choir as a teenager. You know, they sort of say, well, it's, it's, it's you know, John wasn't religious. It's just, you know, I mean, back in the day he was confirmed and he went to church and he did this, but it was never part of his life yeah. from, from, from when we got married. We, we did get married in church, but it was never, we didn't go to church. I mean, we'd sometimes go to a carol service or a funeral. And I said, well, that's fine, you know, mm. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. So sometimes they need permission to be able to go, we don't want anything religious. Yeah. Hey, tell me, what was your most unusual funeral? I mean, I, I, in the introduction, I referred to your Klingon wedding. Yeah. Um, well, unusual funerals. Um, I can, oh, I've done some wonderful ones. Um, there was a young lady called Faye who died of sudden adult death syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, 
And Faye was lovely. She was only in her 20s. Um, she had just just got into a relationship with another girl and they they were planning to set up their lives together and um she died of sudden adult death syndrome it was just awful but her funeral we did at we did at um a local football club hmm. we she was part of a band we had the band that she was in playing she played a boombox and sang uh, we had her band playing we had slideshows of her life everybody dressed in bright vibrant colors and uh, people spoke about her and read poems and it was just just lovely mm. and then we left everybody there to crack open the bar and get the food out and just 30 of us went to the went to the um, crematorium for the committal Right. So that that was unusual in that it was it was great to be involved before the event to help plan it completely, yeah. rather than just receiving the phone call saying the crematorium has been booked next Thursday at twelve. Can you or can you not do it? You know? Yes, yes. Um, other ones, well, um, an, a young lad again in his twenties, very brave, only twenty. He was a university student, died of cancer. We did his funeral at the saints football ground in northampton we had 450 people there we played music again we showed pictures of his life his friends stood up and paid tribute to him it was just great um and then a few weeks ago i got a phone call from a funeral director saying can you take this funeral um and i said yes and it was on a friday at four o'clock the last slot of the day they'd asked for and um, they said, uh, you know, it's very, I mean, the story was tragic, so I'm not going to go into the story of the guy. Mm. But they said, you can expect a bit of a colorful funeral. He was well known in the gay community. So there are going to be some drag queens there. Um, <laughs> and so I said, that's brilliant. Yeah. So I just wore one of my bright colored shirts with butterflies all over it. I wore my cream suit. Um, we had... We had people in drag. We had people with rainbow shirts on. Hmm. And we, we just had a fantastic celebration of this man's life at the crematorium Great. with people being themselves at the service. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, unusual, maybe. Um, I wish it was more usual, frankly. Yes, um, yes. You know, if families only knew that they have the freedom to do things that they really want to do. Trust me, Tony, I think more of them would do it. Well, here's a very clear message for anybody who's listening to this and is organizing a funeral, whether that's ahead of time or right now. Talk to your local celebrants. Really explore what it is you'd like to happen and then find a way to make it happen. Absolutely. And make sure you've got the right celebrant for you. Yes. You know, yes. There are lots of celebrants around now, male and female, different personalities. Absolutely. I love it when I get an email from a family that have found me on the internet, probably, who's saying, we're looking to do a funeral for dad. We really want to have a chat to see, we're trying to find the right celebrant. And I'll yeah. talk to them on the phone for an hour. You know, Great. I'll just chat and they can then decide, having spoken to me, because I'm not right for everybody, um, but my fellow celebrant in the same town might well be the right person for them. 
So talk to celebrants first. Don't don't be afraid to pick the phone up and ring them. Yes, celebrants very much welcome that opportunity to explore not just what you need, uh, but but th- to make sure there is that connection. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, in the introduction, I referred to the work you do regarding baby funerals. Yeah. I mean, they must be the most challenging funerals anybody could could lead, I guess. For a mum and dad who lost a baby, it is just the most terrible, terrible, gut-wrenching, bleak time. It's just yeah. awful. Yeah. There's a lot of support around for families themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, like most celebrants, I only ever conducted one or two baby funerals a year. But in recent years, I've conducted probably 20 or 30 a year. And again... I would never take a baby service without visiting mum and dad, mm. spend an hour or so with them and talk to them and get to know them a little bit. And sometimes a baby funeral will have 50, 100 people there. Sometimes it'll just be mum and dad. And what you need to do on either of those occasions is something completely different. So, you know, when you're with mum and dad, I, I don't stand at the lectern and we just stand together and I chat to them. Mm. Um, because it's just an intimate, quiet time. And uh, I was very fortunate early on in, in sort of working through baby services. I, again, I have elements that I include. So the first question I ask them is, at the start of our service, would you like us to have just a little baby naming mm. for baby? And yeah. Not a christening, but a little baby naming. And I talk about how... The name identifies us to each other, to the world. And for baby, that name is now identifying him or her to the angels who have received him, to those from the family that have gone on before that are now surrounding him beyond where we can see with their love. And mums and dads find, many mums and dads find it comforting to think that baby's now a grandma or great-grandma. So a little baby naming at the start. Um, I talk to baby. I love to talk to baby. And I always say, you know, I don't know. I hope there's some unseen power of the universe that enables this little one to hear the words we're saying today. And on behalf of mum and dad, I tell baby how loved they are. How, how so surrounded by love. And that they may not have walked on the earth, but they've left their little handprints all over the hearts of the family and Their little footprints made an indelible impression on the sand of time. And I was fortunate. I was given a poem by a man who'd lost a baby. And it's just the most amazing poem. It just says, we'll never know your joy or the things that make you laugh. We'll never know which toys you want to play with in the bath. We'll never know the pain you feel or any of your fears. We'll never get to comfort you and wipe away your tears. We'll never know if you're bossy, if you brag, or if you boast. We'll never know the things that matter to you the most. We'll never get a chance to take you anywhere, and we'll never get to show you how much love we have to share. We'll never get to know the things you really, really like. And we'll never get to teach you how to swim or ride a bike. And we'll never know which music makes you sing and want to dance. We'll never know a lot of things. We'll never get the chance. But of all the many things we'll never get to do, 
we'll always have that precious time and the memories of you. And of all the many things we'll never get a chance to say, you'll be with us every second, every minute, every day. We'll never leave you, baby. We'll always be right here. The bond of love, the bond we have is far too strong. It'll never disappear. And time may ease the heartache and take away the pain, but it'll never leave completely until we're all together once again. And that was in memory of baby Millie. Oh, Peter. And so we, I talked to mum and dad and I talked them through at the service. I'll just talk to them about how, you know, in, I, I use the analogy of a garden. I say, look, I'm not much of a gardener, but in my garden in the springtime, little trees come into bud, flowers come into bud. And on the little shrub or the bush where the, the buds are coming and the flowers are forming, sometimes there's one little bud that fails to open that just seems to shrivel and wither and fall from the fall from the twig or fall from the bough, unopened, never finding its rightful beauty. And hard though it is, what happens in nature's garden seems to sometimes happen in the garden of a family and a baby's conceived, so beautiful and precious. But it seems like there's a little unseen mystery sealing its life that it never comes to its rightful glory. And at times like this, we always ask the question, why? And the difficulty we have is that the question, why, just goes unanswered. And life and death never seem to make any sense at all until we can begin to accept both of them as mysteries over which we have no say. But still... But still we find ourselves hurting so much, you know, and with that pain there come dark clouds that seem to just overwhelm us on our bleakest days. But with that pain there's also love and all this little one had ever known was love, growing inside mummy's tummy surrounded by love. So I hope that as time goes on you're able to take the love that you have for baby And allow that love to permeate your lives so that you do become gentler, more caring, more loving people. And in that way, this little baby's legacy will live on. Because your lives will be different from now on. And if they weren't different, it would mean baby didn't matter. But baby did matter. And you can make a difference with the love that you share. So it's that kind of thing I say. Oh, Peter, that's both beautiful and very helpful and i could talk with you all day i suspect yes uh, i probably could go on all day you've realized that uh, Sorry. You've, you've brought so many wonderful things to this podcast thank you so much you're welcome everything. it's a pleasure Tony. well and i just hope that um may you long continue to do this amazing work well thank you i hope so i hope so as long as i'm able to stand up and meet families and uh, continue to do what I do then I should just go on doing it to the best of my ability anyway and yeah thank you for taking the time to talk to me Tan it's my honour thank you very much good luck with all you do thanks but bye 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 bye